0: Uh, We're going to begin a new sermon series today from the book of Philippians. So, naturally, let's turn in the Bible to the book of Acts. We learn in Acts chapter 16 of of the circumstance in which Paul came to know these saints in Philippi to whom he addresses in his letter, which we'll be looking at in just a few minutes. In Acts chapter 16... Luke tells us about that situation that Paul and some companions came to Philippi. In Acts 15, we learn that Paul and Silas had been proclaiming the gospel in Asia. And in the first verses of Acts 16, Timothy then joins up with Paul to join him in the, that work of the gospel. They're in Asia, modern-day Turkey... And if you look there in your Bibles in Acts chapter 16, if you look at verse 6, Luke tells us something that when we read it almost seems astounding. Because there in verse 6 of of chapter 16, we're told that because in the divine providence of God, that Paul and the others were forbidden by the Holy Spirit... To speak the word in Asia. Now, why is that? Why would God do such a thing? Well, we'll we'll learn about that a bit. Look at verse 7. The Holy Spirit did not allow them to have ministry there anymore in that area of Asia. We read in verse 9 that one night while sleeping, Paul received a vision. And in that dream, which is known as the Macedonian call, a man from Greece, which in those days was referred to as Macedonia, this man from Greece, this man from southern Europe, says to Paul in verse 9 of Acts 16, Come here. Come here to Macedonia and help us here. And then so in verse 10 we're told that immediately there we see that faithful response of faith that we see demonstrated in the life of Paul and his companions. Immediately, Luke says, they leave Asia and they travel into Europe, beginning what we refer to as Paul's second missionary journey. Most likely, those events are taking place in about the year A.D. 48 or 49. They travel out of Asia, out of Turkey, and they travel into Europe, into Philippi. And there, Paul and his companions meet a woman, a businesswoman named Lydia. And Paul declares the gospel to her, and she believes. Let me just say this little side note. There again, we see the value, the worth, the respect that the Lord has for women. You know, some will make accusations of those who hold to a biblical Christianity and and who hold high God's word. Some will claim you you disrespect women because you won't let them be preachers or for this reason or that reason. But sisters, I want you to be encouraged that God sent Paul to Europe first to save this woman, Lydia. Lydia for her soul to be saved by the living God. Paul declares the gospel to Lydia. She believes, and then we're told that she and all the members of her household are baptized. And with that, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to Europe and to the city of Philippi. Let's now turn to that book of Philippians Philippians chapter 1. Today I'll be reading through verses 1 through 6. If you have your pew Bible, you can find it on page 980. Let's read again God's holy, living, and inerrant word. By the authority of God, Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... From the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is God's word for you today. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for that enduring word That word in which you promise to complete that which you have begun. Lord, continue to do that throughout the world. Continue to do that in this little country church in Newport. Continue to do that in our hearts as well, we pray. Do that, Lord, through your word and through your spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, when you think. Of the book of Philippians, think of jails. This letter is written by Paul from jail. Most likely he writes during his time of imprisonment in Rome, which would have been sometime during the years most likely of AD 60 to 62. And we have reason to believe that because Paul makes reference of the Praetorium Guard or the Imperial Guard as they're referred to in the ESV translation in Philippians 1.13. He also makes reference to those of Caesar's household in 4.22. And we know that Paul was imprisoned in Rome during this time for his proclamation of the gospel. And there he awaited trial in jail for years, held in prison. Paul references his imprisonment four times in this letter, including three times in chapter 1 alone, in verses 7, 13, and 14. I also say when you think of Philippians, think of jails because of Luke's account of Paul and Silas's time in a jail in Philippi. We read about that in Acts 16. You probably remember that story well. After some arrest occurs in Philippi because of Paul and Silas's proclamation of the gospel there's a bit of a riot that breaks out and Paul and Silas are thrown into jail not necessarily because they did anything wrong but simply because of the unrest and the disruption that the proclamation of the gospel brought because that's what the gospel does sometimes God brings peace through the gospel but also the gospel brings disruption and we should actually invite that disruption even in our own hearts. Paul and Silas are in jail, and we're told in Acts chapter 16 how at about midnight that day, Paul and Silas are in jail rejoicing and saying prayers and singing hymns to the Lord. And then suddenly there's this great earthquake, and the doors of the prison are miraculously opened. But Paul and Silas don't leave because they know that if they leave, that would mean death for the jailer. And the jailer, when he finds that they hadn't left, that his prisoners haven't left, and after after seeing the display of God, the jailer then says to Paul and Silas, What must I do to be saved? How can I know this God who delivers you, who sets the captives free? And Paul and Silas say to them, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household. You and the generations after you. And then the jailer's whole household were baptized that night. So when you think of Philippians, think of jails. Think also of being enslaved. You know, Scripture tells us that we once were enslaved. It says that we were enslaved to a sinful nature, and that we were enslaved to what Paul calls the elementary principles of the world. But thanks be to God, Scripture also proclaims that Jesus came to redeem us and to free us from that which once held us captive. In Acts chapter 16, Luke also tells us about a young slave girl who was living in Philippi. And if it wasn't bad enough that this young girl was enslaved by an earthly master, we read in Acts 16.16 that this slave girl was also enslaved by a demon. And we're told there in Acts 16 that this this girl, wherever Paul and Silas would go as they ministered throughout the city of Philippi, wherever they would go, this young slave girl who was also enslaved by this demonic spirit, she would follow, follow Paul and Silas around all day, wherever they would go, saying, these men are from the Most High God. They will proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she would do that day after day, the demon meaning to mock and to taunt Paul and Silas. And it went on like that for days, Luke says, until one day in Acts 16, 18, we read that that as she was doing this one day, Paul stopped and turned and looked at her and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, come out. And that demon obeyed that command from Paul. And because of the power of the name of Jesus to free the captives, that demon left that girl and she was freed from it from that day onward. When you think of the letter of Philippians, think of jails, think of enslavement, but think also of of the freedom that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ brings, John 8:31:32, the words of Christ: "If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." And John 8:36: "If the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed." Do you know this kind of freedom? Do you know this kind of amazing, gracious freedom that comes only through the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? God invites you to receive that freedom. To receive freedom as you submit yourself to this one who frees you. Embrace Jesus. Embrace Jesus and be free from that which seeks to imprison and enslaves you. These people who we meet in Acts chapter 16, some of them may have very well still been among that little house church in Philippi. These, this woman Lydia, perhaps, was there in Philippi. Perhaps this slave girl comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the one who freed her. And perhaps she too embraced him and found eternal life. And this Philippian jailer and all those of his household and Lydia's as well. We don't know for sure if they were still there in Philippi in 61 or 62 when this letter most most likely was written. Perhaps they were among the saints, among the called out ones of God to whom Paul addresses in this letter. When you think of this letter to the Philippians, think of jails, think of enslavement, think of the freedom that the name of Jesus Christ brings. Think also about beginnings. As I mentioned earlier, the church in Philippi was the first church established in Europe. Most of us have a European ancestry. And so it's reasonable for us to think of the church that was established in Philippi as a kind of mother church to us. The history of the church in Philippi is our history. It's part of our Christian heritage. Not only because most of us descend from Europeans, but also because this is the history of the kingdom of God. This is the history of brothers and sisters in Christ, throughout the world, we all can trace our lineage to this proclamation of the gospel which was present here in Philippi. So when you think of Philippians, think of beginnings. Paul speaks of those things which have have begun in this letter. He speaks in verse 6, for instance, of a work which the Lord has begun in us. It's also right when we think of Philippians to think of completion because the Lord promises in this letter to complete that which he has begun. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We've spoken this morning of how some of the people living in Philippians began their life of walking with Jesus when they received Him in faith and were baptized into Him. But conversion and baptism aren't the sum and the end of the Christian faith, but they're just the beginning of it. And the Lord intends for us to keep walking with Him. He desires for us to grow in our faith. He desires for us to attain a full maturity in Jesus. And that's what this book of Philippians is about. The letter to the Philippians is a call and an encouragement and a means for us to grow in our maturity as Christians. It's really not a stretch at all to say that this letter to the Philippians is a manual for Christian maturity. And in this letter, we learn what it looks like to be a mature Christian. This book is full of great practical theology. Philippians is a book of beginnings and it's a book that speaks also of the completion of that which has begun. When you think of Philippians, think also of confidence. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. Confidence is another one of the key themes of Philippians. In this letter, Paul shares how his confidence in the Lord has grown in his life, even in these recent years since he met the Philippians. He writes also how he's seen the confidence of others grow as together they've all labored together and have been encouraged by one another as they have seen the gospel be proclaimed and lived out in the lives of faithful Christians everywhere. Paul also speaks of how we can have great confidence in the Lord. We can have great confidence in Christ, and that we need not place any confidence in the flesh, in what we might strive to do of our own accord or out of our own strength, or to win the acclaim of men or even of God. We can have confidence in. That the Lord will do what He has promised He will do in our lives. When you think of Philippians, think also of the word joy. In many ways, the letter to the Philippians is the epistle of joy. The word joy or rejoice appears some 14 times in this brief letter. We're called upon to be joyful and to rejoice and to give thanks And we'll see as we make our way through this letter, Paul explains the many reasons that we have to be joyful. So be on the lookout for those reasons for us to have this great God-given joy in our hearts and in our lives as we make our way through this letter in the coming months. Here are just a few reasons why we can rejoice. Paul says that we can rejoice... Because the gospel is being proclaimed, verse 118. And we can rejoice because the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand, Philippians 4, 4, and 5. When you think of Philippians, think also of partnership and community. This letter in no small way is a thank you letter from Paul to the Christians in Philippi. They've been partners in the gospel now with Paul for more than a decade at the time that he writes this letter. In verses 3 through 5, Paul writes, I thank my God in my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, for you are making my prayer with joy. It's very easy for Paul to give thanks to these Philippians because of your partnership in the gospel from that first day. Referring back to 10 years ago when they first heard the gospel proclaimed among them. You have been partners in the gospel since that first day until now, Paul says. Paul again gives thanks to the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel in chapter 4, verses 15 to 16. And you, your Philippians, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Now that may not necessarily mean that truly Paul didn't receive a cent from any other church in all of the world during these times. But in a very special way, these Philippians gave. And they gave in a way which was unlike Paul's experience with some of those other churches, Paul thanks them for being partners in the gospel for more than ten years. You know, some of us on a zoom call a couple of weeks ago had an opportunity to hear one of our missionaries give thanks for our faithfulness to him and in his gospel service. Um, Gary Johnson, we had conversation with him last month and he talked about how thankful he was that Newport Church has stood with him and his family in the proclamation of the gospel for more than 20 years. I think also of John and Kathy Rugg. I don't know for sure. Probably bit, it's been at least 30 years that Newport Church has been, has been partnering with them and their ministry in Chile. Steve and Amy Robertson, it's already 15 years that we've supported that we've been supporting them in their gospel service throughout Central and South America. RUF Mizzou, again, is at 25 or 30 years, perhaps maybe even more, that Newport Church has been partnering with those gospel ministers. Friends, it's no small thing. It's no small thing to help any minister of the gospel, any worker of the gospel in any way that we can at any time. How wonderful especially it is to show a commitment of standing with these servants of the Lord. and know that it is such an encouragement to them. And while I'm giving thanks for your gospel ministry and partnership for these ministers, I want to also thank you for your ministry for your partnership, and for the joy that it has been to share in your lives and in the ministry of this church now for some 15 years. Paul thanks the Christians in Philippi for their partnership with him in the gospel. He also, throughout this letter, reminds his readers that they're in partnership also with one another, and that that too is to be a glory to the Lord. The letter to the Philippians is a call to unity, a, a call to unity in the church, yet another one of the key themes of this book. We are called to be one. We are called and we're made to be one with Christ through faith and through our union with Him, and we're called also to be one with one another as well. We get a taste of Paul's desire and the Lord's desire also. For that God-honoring, Christ-exalting unity in places like Philippians one twenty seven, where Paul expresses his hope for them, that, that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. He speaks of this unity that the Lord desires and that He desires also in two, two Complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul and the Lord desire for the Christians in Philippi. And friends, the Lord desires for you and I as well here at Newport to live with one another with a christ Honoring love and unity. But that's not always easy. That hasn't always been easy in our experience here at Newport, in in our experience at other churches as well. And this also hasn't necessarily been the experience even in Philippi in this short period of some ten years. That's why in 2.14, Paul tells his readers that they are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's why also he he actually has to call two women out by name in chapter 4, verse 2, for them to end their dispute and to agree in the Lord. It's not always easy for us to live in community, even in Christian community. And so the Lord and Paul give us a kind of remedy for those occasions when disunity might be present among us. And that remedy for our disunity, which may sometime come into a church, is humility. When you think of Philippians, think of it as the Lord's call for us to embrace humility. Paul puts forth in this letter God's key to unity. And the Lord's key to living in God-honoring, Christ-exalting Christian community is humility. That call to humility in our relations is is communicated so beautifully in this letter in those first verses of chapter 2. Do nothing, Paul says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then Paul says that if we can't figure out what that means, if we don't know what it would look like for us to live like this, Paul then gives us a model of what that looks like when he speaks of the Lord Jesus who shows us what the kind of humility that pleases the Father looks like. When Paul says in 2.5, Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here I'm reminded of the words of Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and daily pick up his cross and follow me. The calling of the Christian And the calling of Paul's letter to Philippians is a calling to Christ-like, other-centered humility. When you think of of Philippians, think also of grace and peace. Through the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person who receives faith in Christ, who receives Christ as their Lord and Savior, has been reconciled to God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. And a person trusting in Jesus also receives peace from God. We get a hint of that in Paul's greeting to the Philippians in chapter 1. Paul begins his letter to them in verse 2 stating his desire for them is that they would receive even more grace and peace from God. And Paul speaks to this more in chapter 4 when he encourages the Philippians and he encourages us that the God of peace will surely grant to us the peace of God. The peace of which surpasses all understanding. May we all experience more of this divine peace of God from the God of peace. May he do that as we study this letter more. The Christian has peace with God and peace from God. The Christian also has peace with one another. We're told in Ephesians 2 that through faith in Jesus Christ that the Lord has destroyed the wall of hostility which once separated people groups, and that the Lord has caused us all to become fellow citizens and members together in the household of God. And because of that, we have this call to peace and unity that we find also in this letter to the Philippians. The Philippians and Christians throughout the world and throughout the ages have also, of course, received grace from God. And you can think of the meaning of the word grace with each of the letters G-R-A-C-E God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's supernatural provision of that which we need. Grace is God's supernatural provision of that which we lack. And that concept of one's needs and how those needs might be met, how they might be supplied, is yet another one of the key themes of this letter. Throughout this letter, Paul gives thanks to the Philippians for the way that they've ministered to him and provided for his needs throughout all these years. I've already made mention of one of the ways that Paul expressed his thanks to them for their partnership in the gospel. Time and time again, Paul says, they cared for him, sending aid to him in various forms. He speaks of that in chapter 4, saying in, in 4.14, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And 4.17, I am well supplied, having received the gifts that you sent me. Paul's needs have been met. They've been supplied in no small part through these Philippians. Paul then assures them that their needs will also be met. As he encourages them and us with the promise of 419, that my God will supply every one of your needs. And he'll do that according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Reflect on that verse a bit, and you will be blessed. The Lord will supply every one of your needs according to the blessing that is in Christ Jesus. Paul has learned this letter himself personally, and he speaks of that. He speaks of the Lord's provision to him. He speaks of having seasons of abundance. And he speaks also of having seasons of scarcity. But through it all, he's found the Lord to be faithful to meeting his needs. And as he speaks of that in 4.12, Paul again shows us a picture of what Christian maturity looks like when he explains, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Have you learned that yourself? Have you learned how to be content, how to be well satisfied, regardless of your circumstance? Regardless of whether you are in a time of abundance or in a time of want. Friends, apply yourself to studying this letter and learn how the Lord through the enablement and through the power of the Holy Spirit can help you to learn that contentment and to walk with the Lord in confidence and in satisfaction. The Lord, Paul says, will supply every one of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And one of the most important of those needs of ours is a righteousness that's able to make us to be able to stand in the presence of God. And Paul speaks of that righteousness that is ours through Christ Jesus in this letter. In 111, he speaks of the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. And in 3.9, he speaks of a righteousness that comes not from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. But even though we've received peace and grace and this righteousness that come from God through faith, even though that's true, still God calls upon us to respond to that gracious activity in our lives. In this letter, the Lord, through Paul, calls upon us to respond to the work of God in our lives with work of our own. Not in order to earn or to secure our salvation, but in response to the salvation that the Lord has given us. This being well summarized in 2.12 where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now it's important to understand what that verse doesn't mean as well as it does what that verse does mean. And we'll be studying that that verse in detail in the weeks and months to come. But understand, work is another one of the key themes of this letter. Paul makes reference of his labors and of the labors of other faithful gospel workers and of the work of the Philippians themselves even. And there's this call to the readers of this letter to continue to apply themselves to this task of walking faithfully with Jesus for a lifetime. Paul calls them and us to that, to join him in that effort in chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, where he speaks of... How he presses on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Let us then hold true to what we have attained. And what is that end that awaits all those who do apply themselves to walking faithfully with Jesus for a lifetime? it's our exaltation and our glorification verses 317 and 20 brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. The prize that awaits the Christian is to be raised up with Christ and to be transformed into his very image in glory. It seems almost blasphemous to say, but that's the promise of Scripture. And that's the promise of this letter. And of course, the basis for that, the basis of all of the Christian life is the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian will one day be exalted, God's Word says. But not in this life, but in the life to come. But friends, that's made possible only because of the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This work which is on display for you today in this meal that has been prepared for you. This meal which shows forth the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who Paul says in chapter 2, again, these familiar words, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That is the message that Paul and his fellow workers for the gospel applied themselves for. That's the message that this first church in Europe, our Christian ancestors, Received with much joy. This is the message that Paul and his companions applied themselves to. This is the message that the Philippians supported. And friends, this is our only hope for salvation as well. For this is the way of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ, for there is no other name given among men by which you must be saved, by which you may be saved but only the name of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is able to set free the captives. Pray with me, please. Lord God, we thank you that you are the God of beginnings, and you are the God of completion, and you are the God in whom we can have all confidence, Jesus, you are the God who humbled himself to serve those whom you created, to redeem your people. And after doing that, you were exalted and raised up again to the Father's right hand. And Lord, you have promised that all of us who are recipients of grace, recipients of peace, with you and from you, you have promised that we too will one day lay a hold of this same promise, the same reality of glorification and exaltation. It's almost too good to believe. But because it is in your word, we believe. Cause us to believe all the more. Help us in our unbelief. Lord, do that even in this meal which you have prepared for us. Take these common elements of bread and juice and set them apart for your holy purposes. Lord, so that we would continue on, so that we would press on to the prize that awaits, that upward call, the resurrection of the body and life eternal. Feed us, Lord, we pray. Amen.